Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's okay not to take everything so seriously. And if you push less against the universe, maybe the universe will push a little less against you. That is Kim Portrait. And this is episode 198 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. G'day and thanks for being here. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. This is my show. I'm here every week and this is episode 198 of the show with Kim Portrait. You can find her on Twitter, Kim, K-I-M-P-O-R-T-R-A-T-E. She's the CEO of Think TV. More about her in just a moment. If you're new to the show, welcome to the show. Hello. I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much for being here. Um, if you're a regular listener, here we are. We're back. We're back. I hope your week's been good. Thank you very much to all the people that sent me a picture through the week. It is a lovely, lovely thing that uh, you and me are doing at the moment where you send me a photo of whatever it is you're looking at right now. So with the phone you're listening to this on, whip it out, take a photo of whatever it is you're looking at, whatever it is you're cooking or cleaning or walking past or, or doing, and send it to me. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Snapchat or Instagram or wherever. I got some great photos this week. Um, I got, a, I think it was uh, Mike was busy cleaning his bicycle, which was brilliant, scrubbing the gunk off his bike, which was awesome. A uh, couple of, again, once again, great clean carpets in this country are brought to you by this show. So I'm very happy about that. Uh, beautiful photographs of uh, hand feeding wallabies and little joeys, uh, people visiting farms. Uh, someone taking me for a walk through the forest and uh, a great picture of yabbies a yabby is a freshwater crayfish or, or lobster or you know it's a small little thing with big claws on the front of it uh but yeah 
brilliant. Thank you so much for all of those. Send Osher email at gmail.com. It was so great to see everyone at OzPod on Friday. OzPod was the Australian podcasting conference, the second one that's been held. We did it at the ABC studio, well, building in uh, Sydney, in Ultimo on Friday. Everyone was there. It was kind of like the Logies, but uh, no one was wearing suits and everyone was sober, but exactly like the Logies. Otherwise, uh, less backslapping. But, you know, it was brilliant because pretty much the bleeding edge of the Australian podcasting industry was all in one room. All of the the publishers, a lot of the agencies, a lot of the, you know, the biggest broadcasters were all there. And it was it was so good to see everyone. It was great. Everyone came to say hello and have a chat. And it was particularly great for me to see uh, someone I've known for a long time has played a big role in my career, an audio producer by the name of Daryl Misson. Now, Daryl and I are so good to see him. And I'll tell you why. Because when I started in radio, I started, I was 20 years old. Uh, It was a station which I'm on now in Brisbane. It was called B105 back then. And I was earning $8 an hour doing uh, promotion, street team, you know, running around in the trucks. Uh, We called them Black Thunders back then. And uh, I was giving away icy cold cans of Coke on the side of the road giving out stickers, that kind of thing. And one day I was walking past the studio and he said, oi, come in here. Um, can you just read this for me? And it was a commercial script. And so I read it for him. And then the next day he said, oh, can you do two or three of these? Eventually I was doing like 10 or 15 of them every time he, he asked me. And Daryl took the time and the patience to kindly and patiently teach me how to do voiceovers and how to how to read and how to read commercials and how to read promos and how to use my voice properly and how to correct my inflections and all these kind of things. I did them for free, but what he taught me was absolutely priceless. Now, a couple of years later, uh, Daryl had left to Sydney to work at the uh, newly formed Foxtel. He was doing post-production and television there. And I'd left everyone and everything that I'd ever known, including my girlfriend, uh, we were still together, but I just moved away and I headed down to Adelaide to SAFM to get a job on the radio while the sun was up because I'd been doing Midnight to Dawns in Brisbane for so long. And Daryl called me out of the blue one day and he said, hey, Nathan Harvey's just left the request show on Channel V. You should send them a tape. So that weekend I grabbed my Hi8 camcorder and I'd made the now famous Channel V VHS audition tape which I sent in through the post to Piermont on that Monday. Two weeks later, I, I was on a plane for an interview. And two weeks after that, I resigned from my job at SAFM. April 12th, 1999 was the first day I was ever on air at Channel V. And I guess the rest is, you know, you've seen the rest if, if you know, you've had a television <laughs> in Australia. But Daryl kept being my champion. He kept being my champion once I got to Sydney. He introduced me to the biggest voiceover agency there was in Sydney at the time, an agency called RMK, and he helped me create a solid voiceover career before Idol began. So for about four years I was doing um, voiceovers in Sydney as well as Channel V. Pretty much everything that followed on from Channel V, I I traced directly back to the kindness of Daryl, who saw something in me that was worth him investing his time into. It was worth him investing his time to teach me how to rein in whatever enthusiastic exuberance that I'd already had and then channel that into a more professional expression of action. Daryl absolutely was my champion in my career. 
you either find your champion or they find you. Either way, when they're there, you've got to you've got to work hard and work tirelessly to prove their faith in you. Learn what they have to teach you. Work to never betray their endorsement of you when it comes to meetings or connections they've set up. And when the time comes and you find yourself somewhat a champion, you help them too. It was so great to see Daryl, and I'm, I'm really grateful uh, that he and I still work together. We worked together on the f- inaugural production of Movember Radio, and I'm grateful that he's still in my life. He really is the best there is when it comes to imaging on radio and creation of uh, audio that comes out of your speakers. There's no one like Daryl. He wrote the book of a lot of it. Um, a big thanks to everyone who supports the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash osher. Thank you very much. If you feel like this show brings you any value and you feel like you want to give back or just go, you know what, that show that I listen to, I look forward to it. I find myself looking forward to it. Is it worth $1.25 a week? You know what? Yes, it is. Uh, if you choose to do that, patreon.com slash osher, and you can pledge uh, five bucks a month would do it. Uh, that gets you exclusive episodes that I put out once a month or thereabouts. And um, it really, really is impossible to do the show without you. So if you've pledged on Patreon, it's because of you that I'm able to make this show. So thank you. Thank you very, very much. I hope you're doing okay. hope you and your brain are doing okay at the moment. Um I'm interested to know. I'd love to know your thoughts. Send us your email at gmail.com. I'm thinking about possibly slightly altering the course of this show, perhaps galvanizing a little more what it has come to be about from what it started out as, wondering on your thoughts, um, just subtly shifting this this show to, I guess it already is, but I guess more publicly focused on what it is to live inside your own head. Because it seems the most amount of feedback that I get on this show is the parts of the stories that the people, my guests tell about what it is to live with their own head and and live with the thoughts that we all share. We may not be the CEO of something or the founder of something or the gold medal winner of something, but we all have faced challenges and we all deal with very similar uh, feelings. And those are the parts of the shows that the most people write the most emails about. So I'd, I'd love to know your thoughts. Send us your email at gmail.com. For me, this week, well, look, to be honest, I'm sure you've heard me say this many times before, but the more I say it, the more accountable I'll be. I'm uh, pretty sick of uh, looking like a Ziploc bag full of mashed potato with my shirt off. Um, So I'm trying to do something physical at least four days a week. Um, I'm trying to use the other days to recover because I'm, starting to lift weights again and I'm just too sore to get back go back to back sometimes I ran another 10k last weekend last Sunday uh, I'm doing another one in two weeks with Yumi which will be great and on that 10k on Sunday that was the Indigenous Marathon Project run I ran 17 minutes faster than I did in the bridge to Brisbane the week before which was which was cool and it was great to be a part of the Indigenous Marathon Project which do great great work if you want to know more about them you can find the episode that I did with uh, Robert D. Costello uh, which is a few episodes ago now. But Deke was there, which was killer. So much fun uh, to run with people who all feel that empowering 
in Indigenous people of Australia is an important thing. Because <laughs> in my opinion, it is a very, very important thing. In fact, there is no more important thing. Um, when it comes to our Indigenous people, is to, is to provide empowerment and self-determination. But that's another podcast. Um, it was really, really cool. Uh, look, I know on this show that I do talk a lot about my medication, but I'll tell you why. It's because it's a part of my daily life, and I know that's the same for a lot of people listening. And I know from experience that when I was in trouble and when I was really, really sick, what helped me was someone else putting up their hand, telling their story, and me then going, oh, it's not just me. So with that in mind, uh, I've changed my medication again. Um, I'm always trying to balance out the benefits of the side effects you know, trying to balance out the benefits and the side effects is, is what I'm trying to do. Uh, and after I met with my doctor again this week and we both decided to reduce my dosage one more time. I started out on 125 milligrams of the dosage I'm on, of the drugs I'm on, and I'm now down at 25. So I'm at a fifth of what I started at, which I, I guess, you know, goes a long way to show you how much better I've got. But when I was really sick, look, I was on two different kinds of antipsychotics. I was on an NDRI, I was on an SSRI. I, it was like using a leaf blower to blow out a candle, but I really needed it. I was in a lot of trouble. I needed all those drugs. I put on about a kilo a week from those meds, but at the time they were worth it. I was in a lot of danger. But after a couple of months, I started to feel a bit better. Um, the psychosis experiences had for the most part abated and since then, slowly, 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 I've been coming off them. So this is probably nearly two and two years now. Firstly, by parts of dosages, so halving tablets, quartering tablets, and then going off them all together, uh, all under the supervision of my doctors, by mind you, and then switching drugs when the combinations weren't working. And once I'd stopped taking four, and I was taking three, then I was taking two, and then I was, you know, flipping from one drug to another. Um, just switching when things weren't working out. Uh, but slowly, slowly, I've been knocking things all the way back, and, and now I'm here. Okay, so sure, the the OCD that I live with is a little more pronounced. However, now I'm way better identifying at identifying the difference between, I guess, a normal reaction and uh, or a normal behaviour and an obsessive one. And I'm getting much better at managing those uh, looping thoughts and looping behaviours when they do show up. I'm much better at challenging them than I used to be. Uh, and, you know, as I did last time, a couple of weeks ago, I, I let the people close to me know that I'm shifting meds and I just say, listen, I might be a little crabby. I might be a little odd about a few things. Just let me know and I'll, I'll check it because um, it should settle down in a few weeks. And it should. It should settle down in a few this few weeks. But I do say this a lot, but it is really important to talk about it. It's important to talk. And let, if you, if you live with a mental illness, you know, it's, you know, it's important for me to share with you my experience because I know that it can be very isolating. You might think you're the only, you know, the, and it certainly was with me. I felt like I was the only person going through things. Um, but it's also important for people who don't take drugs all the time just to kind of understand what it is to live with a brain that's kind of different. Um, but it's also important to talk about what treatment can look like for some of these things, but also that sometimes you can get better. When I was really sick, I couldn't get those antipsychotics down my throat fast enough. 
I was so happy they existed. In fact, I would look forward to them at the end of the day. But as I got better and my brain started to heal, my need for them changed. So here I am. I'm on the lowest dose. No, it's not the lowest dose, but it is a low dose. And we'll see how we'll go. Will I be able to manage life off of meds altogether? I don't know. Would I like to live without the side effects of the meds that I'm on right now? Yes, I would. Can I live like I did before when I was off meds completely? No way. So I guess the only thing you can do is just suck it and see, really. Don't worry, I'll keep you posted. Um, but whatever is going through your head this week, I hope it's all right. And uh, just know that we're all here together. We're all doing this together. Look, let me tell you about my guest today. I'm stoked that I can bring you this woman. Kim Portrait is the CEO of Think TV, which is an, I guess you'd call it an industry-led group that uh, promotes the use of television advertising in the marketing community uh, in recent years. As I'm sure you've understood, uh, there's a, a massive push towards um, non-traditional uh, advertising, basically, you know, through your phone on Facebook, on YouTube, Twitter, etc. Uh, and it's a, basically an industry body run by the television industry to, to promote use of advertising in, in a television industry. You can find Kim on Twitter, K-I-M-P-O-R-T-R-A-T-E, Kim Portrait is her name. She and I worked together a couple months ago at a conference doing a keynote on the social and lifestyle bubble that a lot of marketers live in and how that affects where they put their ad budgets and ultimately you know, how effective those decisions are. Um, if you go and look up the survey and the research that Kim and I did or worked on together, you'll, you'll see that it's, uh, it's very interesting. Kim, uh, though, she's so much more than that. And that's the real part of the show that a real reason I really wanted to get her on the show. She's super smart, super funny. And she's a really interesting person who's lived through some of the darker times of her industry with regards to equality. She even has a hidden figures moment when it came to bathrooms in one of the workplaces she worked at. But, Kim's story is for anyone that is struggling in a corporate environment, perhaps struggling to achieve or align yourself with what you feel is important and, and what the entity that you're working with is trying to achieve. And yeah, Kim has a, has a great story to tell. It's a story of triumph. It's a story of balancing a career and a family and living a life passionately in the direction of your choice. She's great. She has a fantastic energy, and I'm thrilled that I can get her on the radio or on the phone, whatever, however you're listening to this. Enjoy this conversation with Kim Portrait. Okay, so I'm recording with great ceremony. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> how are you, Kim? I'm fine. How are you? I'm all right. Welcome. You Thank are you. currently being somewhat flirted with and molested under the table by my dog, Frank. I know. It's so great. I love dogs. I l actually, I think they... Uh they really relax you. Like, you know, if you're in a stressful situation, I did um, the Parkinson walk, the unity walk, which they do every year on Sunday. And there were all these great signs as you were kind of walking along this 4K walk. And one of them said, pets change your mood and reduce your stress. And uh, I thought, yep, that sounds exactly right. So I um, love animals. Yeah, it's, it's true. Actually, I had, um, who did I have in here? Uh, uh oh, the guy on Shark Tank, the vet from Shark Tank who started Pet Barn and... Uh, Green Cross, he was just saying, look, you know, the um, the evidence to show the health benefits of having a pet, even a goldfish, 
A goldfish. Something to care about. Right, right. It's the idea that you've got something to care about, something that relies upon you. Yeah. Changes how you look at yourself, value yourself. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Have you always had dogs? Um, I had cats for a long time. Oh, yeah. And uh, so how is it different? Uh, cats are, uh, you know, dogs have owners. Cats have flatmates. Yeah, right. Right. But um, I had I had two great cats for a very long time, and they were heaps of fun. They very smart, played fetch. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, Himalayans. They yes. Were, and they lived forever, and they didn't. Um, it's odd that you know we choose an, we choose companion animals that don't live as long as humans. Like yeah. we should be choosing Galapagos turtles. <laughs> right, but they're not furry and cuddly. No. But they're not going to run from you. No, that's true. And they're going to stay around their whole lives. Yeah, no, I think I'm a dog person. I've got lots of friends who've got cats. But I just feel like cats feel like you're doing them a favour. Yes. Or they're doing you a favour. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, Frank is uh, he's a good good little guy to have around and he's a great welcoming committee for podcast guests who come to the – Absolutely. He helps reframe and change people's uh, – helps them change gears. Yeah, I feel uh, like I should be wearing a pair of jeans, not a work dress, but <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're here. We met when I did a gig for you at the Big Mumbrella Conference. You That's are right. the, the CEO of Think TV, which if I'm not mistaken is an, an industry body promoting – the use of television advertising? It is. That's that's great. That's exactly what it is. I remember my notes. Yeah, then. well done. Um, we're new. We're a new business. So we're 13 months old. And we literally, I started the business on behalf of the shareholders last July. And my first day was off to office works to get pens and pencils. So, and you say, was, don't you notice there's a CEO written on my card? Yeah, no, you know what? When you run a, it's a small organization. When you run a small business, um, titles don't mean a great deal because everything needs to get done. So it's been an interesting year. I, I actually was not really a person that wanted to strike out on my own. So my whole career has been prior to this working with big organizations, but, um, I really like the television industry. I think they're a really important part of the landscape for lots of reasons, um, you know, from an advertising point of view, from a content point of view, from a cultural and community point of view. So I was really interested in seeing what I could do to help sort of move their cause along. Um, and I was lucky enough to be picked to, to sort of start the business, which was great. But, yeah, it's um, running a, your small, a small business is you worry about things that you never thought you'd ever worry about. Like what? Um so I remember about two months in, I was at a dinner party, you know, with people I've known for a really long time and all kind of not in my industry, all, you know, all over the place, the work that they do. And I found myself waxing lyrically about an accounting software package to somebody. And I didn't realise kind of what I was doing, but I was talking about how great this thing is and how easy it makes life and how connected you can be even if you're not in the office. And a couple of people that I've known for, you know, 20 years kind of just looked at me and went, do you do understand that you're having a, you know, a love affair with zero? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, actually, I get it. That's... I use zero too. It's awesome. Yeah. And you, you know, I pay for it. They don't give it to me for free. No, I'm the same. No, we're the same. <laughs> but, but you worry about, you know, you worry about the stuff you don't know. So, and particularly when you've never started a business before, I've had lots of help and lots of coaches, which is great. But, um, you know, that first note from the tax office where, you know, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a girl who has insurance and pays the taxes and does all that stuff, you know, religiously and, and, and properly. Then suddenly there's this new thing, which is a, you know, I was a marketer for many years. I never had to worry about any of that kind of stuff. You know, you're sick with the flu. You still have to make sure that everybody gets paid. It's just, it's a different level of responsibility 
you get used to it. You know, it's not like it's it's not crippling, but it's just there's so much. I think when you get a bit older, and you've I know you've got kids, so have I. I remember when my daughter was little and they can't do something on Tuesday and then by Thursday they figured out how to do something and then it's a learned skill that they keep with them. So it's felt a bit like going back to childhood because there's all this stuff that you just don't know you have to do and then when you realise you have to do it, it becomes part of the rhythm of, you know, day-to-day work. But it's been a really interesting experience. Did you... Were you always – you said you, you came from, from a marketing background, so yeah. is this your first foray into broadcast? Yeah, I've never worked in television. Right. I've never worked in television. I, I mean, I've worked around television. So my background is either working as a marketer, you know, in a marketing department, or I did uh, eight years in the States where I worked as a director of comms planning, so kind of a brand strategist, communication strategist. And then when we came back to Australia with our baby, I went to work in media agency. So I've got kind of a – I've yeah. sort of worked in most of the sectors that touch TV uh-huh. in different ways, but I've never actually worked in the television industry before. So that's been a real um, a real learning curve as well, which is great. Did you did you start out in Sydney as a kid? No, I grew up in Queensland. Oh, beautiful. You and me both. Yeah, I grew up in Queensland. Which so bit? Uh, Brisbane. Oh, yeah. The Gap. Oh. Yeah. You An old old hellos girl. All oh, right. Well, there you have it. Yeah. For anyone's listening, we just played the Brisbane game. We did. We did. Yeah, we, we just did. played. The, we just played. And I'll bet we will, we will know the same person. You know what? It happens all the time. And if you can figure out it at any kind of event party or wherever, <laughs> if somebody is from Brisbane, you can almost immediately kind of work out exactly whether or not you yeah. were connected. So, so I'm sure I, you were. I lived on the other side of Mount Cuthra from you. And uh, used to often fang my uh, Holden Sunbird up and down Gap Creek Road. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Before yeah. they paved it. Holden Sunbird, fancy. It was the Tirana, but it was only four cylinders. Right. Yeah, it was uh, fun. Right. I was a Leyland um, 76. Oh, P76. Yeah. The, yeah, the, the one of the greatest cars ever. Yeah, and it was, and I looked ridiculous in it because I'm five foot nothing, and basically, you know, needed a cushion to look over the dashboard, and it was just crazy. But, <laughs> but yeah, I know, I know exactly the road you're talking. About. What do you remember about what do you remember about growing up in the Gap in Brisbane, which is this kind of now it's very different, but it would have been almost a semi-rural community then. Yeah. Um, what do I remember? I think probably it's the stuff you don't realise at the time. So safe. Yeah. Really so and sleepy. You know, yeah. there was you know, my biggest worry was did my ribbon match my uniform? That was kind of you know, that was the day to day sort of stuff. So there wasn't anywhere near the same level of complexity that people are dealing with, particularly young adults. Yeah. You know, teenagers and young adults. It's we've just been through a process where we've been selecting subjects, you know, for our daughter who's going into year eleven. And just the pressure. I, you know, I don't I don't actually recall whether it was there and I just wasn't Mm. smart enough to realise it was around. But it just seemed very easy and not particularly stressful and, you know, everything you did didn't count. And I think social media, you know, like I feel sorry. I would would say it didn't count but it didn't stick to you like shit to a blanket for the rest of your life. Yes, I completely agree. I mean, I think, you know, social media is a really interesting phenomenon and I think it's great to connect people and it's great from a community point of view but it's also, you know, very tricky as you're growing up, mm. you make mistakes because that's what growing up is about. Yeah. To have those recorded indelibly in time, you know, for your whole life. And who amongst us is the same person now that they were at 16? Oh, God, no. You know, and that, but that's the record that the kids are dealing with. So I, 
it's not surprising they're cynical. It's not surprising they're media savvy. Yeah. Because they know they live, you know, their life under a spectrum. What do you – now, I – I know exactly which school you went to because I went to the boys' school across the street. Right. Yeah. Our school used to do musicals with your school. I know exactly, yeah. And I'm just wondering, like I'm just watching the subjects that uh, uh, Georgia, she goes to an all-girls school as yep. well. Yep, And the other night she was telling us about her assignment. She's in grade eight. Her assignment was, I need to write two blog posts on the disempowerment of women in media. Yeah. I'm well. like, there's no fucking way that would have happened. Like, no. do you remember, like, as far as what schools' roles are in shaping young women for the world ahead of them, what do you remember about, did you have any of that at school? No. no, well, I went to a religious school. Well, it was convent. And there was heaps of nuns there. Yeah, yeah so I, I think that the view of the world that was provided was very conservative um, and the the orthodoxy of what you were taught was very conservative uh, and, and aligned with the school's values, you know, so no no, no issues with that mm. choice, those choices. But, yes, yeah, certainly I look at this, I have the same kind of experience where, you know, video essays on the rights of women in India is sort of work that my child's doing and I think it's fantastic. Mm. Um, but, no, it's just it's a different world. It's a, But I think the world is different. It's connected. I yes. don't know that we were terribly, I mean, connected at the time. There no. Was, there was no internet. That was a wonderful thing. Do, but I remember like, I don't know if the messaging was similar in your school, but for me it was like uh, you graduate, you go as hard as you can and you go into medicine or law yeah. or your life's over. Yes. No, and I, that's exactly right. Girls got nursing too. You had another choice if you were a girl, which was, you know, or teaching. Right. You know, you're teaching really smart girls went into law. Most girls didn't go into medicine, but, but certainly I remember probably – 80% of my graduating class went either into teaching or nursing and I was not up for either of those things. I was actually enrolled to study law and like two days before the scores came through or you had to send your offers in, I changed my major because I thought I'm going to spend my whole life reading really, really, really thick books and I don't know that that's something I really want to do. So what did you change to? Uh, communications. All right. Yeah, I changed to communications. Where'd you do that? Uh, QUT. All right. Yes. I did. I did six weeks of a part-time communications degree. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, no, I dropped out. Well, it's, and it's you know it was it was the score was really high to get into, probably artificially so because of demand, because the content. I don't know why well, I work in that field still, but I don't know that what we do is rocket science. Mm. But uh, yeah, really tough to get into. Um, I started out as a journalism major. But uh, I fell foul of the system because I used to work in a pub on a Thursday night to pay, you know, for uni. And I used to stay after for a couple of drinks. And then, of course, the shorthand class was at 8 o'clock on a Friday morning. So I ended up in marketing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, all those people that got up super early on a Friday to do their shorthand, mm. where are they now? Well, hopefully they're all working still. We've <laughs> got to keep the journalists involved. Good Lord. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if many people are taking notes in shorthand these days, but every now and again I do see somebody that does that. But, you know, what? Well, but it's good because, my, you know, you hear that conversation about my job won't, you know, the job I'm going to do won't exist when I finish school and mm. the world will change. It's like we're a perfect example of that. Like, no, I don't, well, I'm not a journalist so I don't know, but I'm sure that our iPhones and recording things are a lot more practical than language no one understands with the squiggly lines. Yeah, my, my uh, younger brother uh, works in... Um, uh, communications and uh, he was at a massive auto show uh, not long ago, a big Asia Pacific auto show, you know, huge seven-day-long thing. And he said there's journalists who are probably 10 years older than me, like in their late 50s, 
and people in their 20s. So the guys in their late 50s are taking shorthand and people in their 20s are there on iPhones. Yeah, right. But there's no one in the middle. Wow. Which is kind of interesting. Where'd they go? Uh, well, the, the guys in their 50s never left. Right. They kind of yeah. didn't. They, they got there and they parked. And that's it. Yeah, right. And not getting out of the way. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting because all these other people that are passionate about the automotive industry and writing about it, that you know, can't find a place to go. It's a shame. Yeah. It's, it's interesting though, you know, that... That's Whole generations removed. Yeah, that an entire point of view, an entire different point of view, and I'm sure it's not just in automotive industry. I'm sure it's in many other industries where you constantly, and, and certainly you see it. You know, this. Uh, I don't want to get too serious, but you certainly see that kind of white male middle class heteronormative view of most things being the one that's you know spouted right. because those are the people that are writing about it. When, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. I think, and I think, diver- I think diversity is really important. Yeah, and I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure that we've got our arms around what diversity should be. Yeah. It tends to turn into a, to, to a gender conversation or a cultural, like a race conversation. Yeah. But age diversity is, you know, equally important yeah. from a learning point of view. It truly, it truly, it truly is. So, when you were at university, um, did did it did it excite you? Did when you changed to your communications? Because a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people might be afraid of the idea that you can't change tack. Mm. You know, that oh, I'm stuck on this thing. I've got to keep doing it. Yeah, no, that's never bothered me. <laughs> no, that's never bothered me. Um, I, the work I wanted to do always was I was always curious about people, and I didn't have the probably the science mind for a psychology or a kind of in that sciences field. But the the cultural aspects of community and how people connect with each other and, as it turns out for me, you know, products or stories or narratives or brands um, and other people was always something I was really curious about. You know, and I've done, you know, I've worked in things where I probably shouldn't have because I probably wasn't the right, I didn't have the right level of empathy or understanding. So I worked in beer back in the 80s. Um and they actually had to, you know, put a girl's bathroom on the floor because I was the first girl and there was all that kind of stuff. Wow. Which, which beer company? I'm not going to tell you. But it was a big one. It was a big one and it was here in Sydney. Um, and I remember. How did it feel? Yeah. <laughs> not saying anything. Um, and, and it was funny because it was the first time because as a young woman you think that you can do everything and anything Wow. That you want better than anybody. And it wasn't probably until I'd left maybe a couple of years after where I thought, actually, because I don't drink beer, and I thought, you know what, that probably wasn't the smartest choice. <laughs> right. Yeah. So but what's fascinating for me is there's that extraordinary film, Hidden Figures, about the NASA. Yeah. Uh, and there's that whole thing about she has to go. It's a 10-minute walk for her to get to the nearest toilet. Did you literally have that on your first day? There's nowhere for me to go to the bathroom? Well, I don't think anybody really thought about it. So it was a new regime and, you know, they were obviously changing the way the department ran and hiring me was fine because I had good credentials and all the rest of it. And it wasn't kind of until I got there that I thought, well, this is a bit strange. So I had to have a word to HR and it was all sorted out, but it was a bit of a schlep, yeah. It wasn't quite as bad as Hidden Figures I've seen in the film. But it wasn't quite that bad. But, but you had to go like downstairs? Well, it was just I needed to sort of, they needed to construct, you know, a new space um, and it was... Yeah, it was all very peculiar. It would have been fantastic because everybody wants that secret toilet that no one else knows about <laughs> at work. That's right, that's right, yeah. And you had it all to yourself for a little while. I don't while. know. I think we're the only one using the bathroom. <laughs> it's like it's pretty obvious what's going on. <laughs> I don't really like to draw that kind of attention to myself, to be honest. I was like, oh, all right, then off we go. 
Didn't have a choice. You spent a bit of time working for Tourism Australia, didn't you? I did. I did five years with Tourism Australia. And which campaigns were they that we would have known? So I came in after uh, Where the Bloody Hell Are You? Oh. So I was after that. That would have been, now for folks who don't know, that every time they do one of those campaigns, half the people love it, half the people think, how dare you represent our country this way? Yeah. So the one thing you learn working for Tourism Australia, you have 22 million shareholders. You've all got a view about whether you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. So you get quite resilient, actually. Yeah. It was Lara Bingle, wasn't it? She was, yes, yes. She, she was, was the where the bloody it, hell are She you was girl. the girl in the bikini at the end. It was yeah. like that was her, you know, her big moment. Her moment. Her breakthrough moment. So nothing like Australia was the work I did and they still, I think, use that same tagline. But we did a ton of stuff. So changed the tagline, changed the logo, you know, made lots of ads, did lots of things in social media ran the websites. Well, I didn't personally run the websites, but yeah. managed the team that did that. So it was great. It was a fantastic job. Every day you went to work, felt like you, you know, were strapping on the green and gold, even though you had no chance of ever representing your country in any kind of sporting event. But you are representing our country. You're, you know, like how many people in the Olympics are going to come from another country to be here? What, 8,000? Yeah. Maybe? That many people arrived at Sydney this morning. Well, that's true. <laughs> no, I, th- I think it was, though, as a, as, a, as a communications job, it is a unique thing. So I've, I have immense respect for the work that they do. But it really did um, fuel the day with more passion than potentially, you know, some of the other jobs I've had just because you thought, well, I'm doing something really important for my country. What did it teach you about the way we as Australians see ourselves? Um, I think we think that we are either more sophisticated or less sophisticated than we really are depending on the individual you talk to. So the people in Australia are absolutely a key differentiator um we like to see ourselves as more sophisticated than potentially we are and i sometimes wonder if in an effort to appear more sophisticated we kind of lose some of our core you know cultural characteristics around humor and anti-authority kind of behavior and i don't mean that in a break windows kind of way i just mean in a healthy disrespect for authority to kind of question and probe um so yeah i think i think that's probably and, – and fun. I think there's a real sense of fun um, in this country that that we should hold on to, we should keep because I think it's a unique characteristic for us. Did you get to discover a bit of the country you hadn't seen? I saw lots of the country. I really did, yeah. So I um, spent a lot of time in Queensland. We, we, you sort of got given – not officially, but you sort of got given states to look after. So um, – or states that you sort of had a stronger empathy with. So because I was from Brizzy, I – did a lot in North Queensland, I did a lot in Tassie and I did a lot in the Kimberleys and up wow. north in Broome, which was beautiful. It was beautiful. It's it's always a, an astonishment to me that more Australians, I mean, we get such, you know, precious time away that we yeah. choose to spend and there's such mystery about going overseas. Mm. When you can go to essentially, you can go to the end of the earth and not even need to use your passport. Yeah. You can go to some of the most untouched frontier that exists on this planet. Yes. Right here in our own country. And it's stunning. Yeah. Absolutely stunning. Um, yeah, the parts of Tassie, you know, parts of the Kimberleys, Cape Levesque, places like that up in northern Western Australia, just magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. Most beautiful places on earth. When you started doing, and I'm, I guess I'm kind of interested, you probably would have done a fair bit of research about how people overseas view Australia. Yes. And what did you find? So um, they, they come to Australia because they know that it's got a beautiful natural environment and they come for the people. Um, but it also, 
Australia gives them a gift around being more relaxed and more comfortable. And I remember talking to an English woman, which probably sums it up best, and I, and I said, you know, she'd been to Australia and I was in London doing some work and she'd been to Australia and I said, what did you like about it? And she said, before I went to Australia, when I got up in the morning and went to the shops to get the milk and the paper, I would put lipstick on and I would brush my hair and I would be, you know, perfectly well-groomed. She said, by the time I got back from Australia, I realised it just wasn't that important. <laughs> That, you know, I needed to get the milk and I needed to get the paper, but the pressure I was putting on myself. So I didn't need to wear lipstick to the shops anymore in the morning. So I know that sounds like a really small thing, but it's a fundamental change in that person for their experience being in this country, which is it's okay to relax. You know, it's okay not to take everything so seriously. And if you push less against the universe, maybe the universe will push a little less against you. Have you found that in your in, in your career path, oh, absolutely. this alignment with the universe of which you speak? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think any time you push hard and you want something, it invariably doesn't work out the way you plan. And if you just surrender a little bit to the forces and the circumstances, work. I'm not saying, you know, roll over and stop, but certainly you can spend your life plotting and scheming what the next thing looks like or you can continue to kind of live in the moment and manage the moment so that you get to an outcome that's good for you and the business and the people in it. Uh, can you give me an example of how this has worked out for you when you've pushed and something didn't come your way? Um, lots of examples. I think, you know, you apply for jobs that you think you want and, you you know, you leverage your network and then you sit there, um, you know, you sit and you doing all the research and you're ready for the interview and then, you know, the interview call never comes and you're devastated because you were the perfect person and it was right. I mean, I'm sure, you know, roles are kind of the same. It's like yeah. it was mine. It was always mine. The truth is it never was yours. Um, and sometimes if you just kind of – and I, you know, with this particular job, just one of the things I had to do was prepare um, a plan for the board. So there were lots of interviews, as you can imagine. And then towards the end there was a conversation about, well, what would you do with the business? So, you know, you had an hour to come in and have a chat. And, you know, it was a bit like getting homework. So you're thinking, oh, great, I'm not, you know, getting paid, but I've got to do this work. And I sort of started a bit resentful of having to do homework. And then as I sort of started to develop this plan and think about what this business could be, I started to get really excited. You got enrolled. Yes. But that I think that's a great example of instead of, instead of taking a position that said, well, this is really an inconvenience and, I'm qualified and I should be moving forward with this to actually get engaged and say, well, what would it look like? What will it be like? What future will we have? Um, and made it all the difference in the world. So just being accepting of the things that come your way. And, you know, you don't always have to choose to embrace those things. You know, you can always have something presented to you that you decide not to participate in. That's an equally valid choice. But for those things that are useful or you think have got merit, to embrace those and and understand that you don't know what you don't know and that's actually okay. When when's an, an occasion where you know you being in acceptance and seeing an opportunity come to you and pass by? When's it worked out okay? When's that life of acceptance kind of brought you something fortuitous? Well, I think this role is a great example. Mm -hmm. um, the Tourism Australia job was a great example. I was actually working for Tourism Australia in their media agency and uh, I was approached by a recruiter to say, you know, we they're restructuring and they'd really like you to interview for the job and I'd just been around the world pitching the business um, and so I went to the, my MD at the time. And went Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, they've rung me up and said, come and have an interview about this role and I don't really want to do that because I like where I am and it's a great job but I can't really not go and have the conversation because I've just told Tourism Australia that I love them in 26 countries. So I'm going to go and have the whole I'm better for you here than their conversation. And so that's what I was planning to do. I was like I need to make sure that I maintain faith with them and so I went and the first conversation, rather than kind of, you know, my prepared speech about I can do more good for you where I am than in your organisation, I listened rather than talking. And by the end of the first conversation, I thought, actually, this sounds like a really interesting opportunity. So sometimes just keep your mouth shut, give other people a chance to talk. It's not a bad idea either. Do <laughs> <laughs> you tell that to your kids? Yeah, they don't listen. <laughs> They don't listen. I'm assuming that's because they'll get older and they'll listen. I'm assuming that's their age. I hope um, I hope that they have the foresight to to kind of use their ears more than their mouth. Well, if there's, there's one thing that I've learned, and bear in mind um, she might be 13 but I've only got three years' experience because she was 10 when I got here. Right. All right. So there's one thing I've learned is that when I sit her down and I say, um, the way you're doing this, it's probably going to work out better if you do it that way. Mm-hmm. That's the perfect way to get her to not listen and look at her phone and do something else. Right. If she sees me doing something in a particular way that is different from the way she might do it, you know, a couple of days will go by and I'll see her do the same way that I was doing. I'm like, oh, God, she's watching the whole time. Yeah. Every single of my, like the actual sit, the teaching moments don't actually happen. No. The teaching moments are the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, that's absolutely true. My husband and I talk about um, parent survivor with a teenager, which we're convinced is outplay, outwit, outlast. <laughs> and that's, and we certainly we run, that, we run that through the house. And as they get older, it gets harder because sort of 10, 11, 12, they're still in their formative years, but they're still sort of kids. So, you know, you can still have a conversation. You still carry some authority and some weight. But by the time kids are 16, 17 and so on, they're, they're adults, you know. So my daughter at the moment wants to get her hair dyed multicolour and many, many earrings. Now she goes to a fairly conservative girls' school. So we've sort of come to a compromise where during the school holidays she can kind of dye her hair. We had this great conversation where maybe a week or two ago she was wanting to get her ears pierced, like multiple piercings, and I just said, look, no. And it was one of those great moments where she looked at me and it was like, well, why? And I actually went, because I said so. <laughs> and it was this, this cracking moment where I was my own mother <laughs> listening to that conversation and I thought sometimes you don't actually have to explain to your children why you don't want them to do something. You just 
tell them you don't want them to do it. So we'll see how we go. I'm sure that there'll be piercings in the future, but it's just it's okay not to treat your children as equals. It's okay to have a conversation with them where you're actually an adult with some life experience and even if they don't pretend to listen or pretend they're not listening, it does, as you say, a couple of days later, it all kind of turns and you get the conversation back again. Sometimes when I first became a stepdad and I, I, you know, just all day she's challenging me. Yeah. All day, all day, all day. And at first I was like, no one in my life challenges me this way. I I would remove myself from a situation that is this difficult. Yeah. Um, No one in my life speaks to me this way. And then I realised, oh, she's pushing up against the barriers because it's safe to do so and she's figuring out where she ends and the world begins and I have to stand here. Yes. And, like, the best advice ever given to me was, um, yes, she's going to ignore you, but the most important thing you can do is to be there for her to ignore. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it's it's sort of it's sort of a thankless task though, isn't it, because people don't talk to you the way your kids talk to you. And, in fact, if other people spoke to you the way your children speak to you, you'd, you'd exit the room. You know, you go straight to HR. Yeah, yeah exactly hey, right. listen. Yeah, that's right. This is really strange. And this is what happened. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's exactly right. My, a friend, a really good friend of mine once said to me, and then she had girls and boys. And she said, boys will tire you out, but girls will do your head in. <laughs> and I think that's probably true. It's probably, it's probably true. Yeah. We, we're going through the, uh, the subject scenario at the moment. It's only for grade nine. But still, you know, it's interesting watching what she chooses. And I guess I'm just, you know, she wants to do whatever she wants to do. I'm just, you know, trying to instill upon her that it's not the be all and end all. Yeah. You know, what you score you get at the end of high school despite what they will tell you, yeah. is not the – that doesn't define your entire adult life. Uh, I, don't worry. We do exactly the same thing. As I say to my child, don't peak at high school. <laughs> no. There's so much more in your future. Oh. This is a doorway. You just have to make sure that you get through the door in the way you want with all of your, you know, self-esteem and confidence intact. Kim, there are terrorist boys I went to school with who are still at the Royal Exchange Hotel in Toowong. I am not surprised, right? They never left high school. I guarantee you they were in their first date or the first 15 as well. And no. Yeah, see, it's don't peak. That's my one piece of advice for today. Do not peak at high school. Do not peak at high school. There is plenty more ahead. So well, tell me about um, the – you know, the, the the journey of how you got to this Think TV scenario because you've got, you know, you've, you've got a family. It's not a young family. But you've definitely got kids who are going to need your support for at least another maybe eight years, maybe ten years. Yep. And you're facing the situation where I'm going to have to change careers. I'm going to have to go do something that I've never done. Yeah. Tell me about this leading up to when Think TV started. So it's always been the same for me. I would be working in a role um, and I would invariably meet someone or have a project with someone that, you know, two or three years later would pop up and say, we're doing this project, would you be interested in working on it? So I really, and in the television world, I'd worked with a number of the sort of decision makers over the course of kind of a decade, not in a for them kind of way, but just been involved with projects. Mm. So um, when, I, when you say people pop up, it's, this is... It's not someone you have coffee with every week. It's not no. someone you play golf with all the time. It's just, oh, we worked on a thing a few years ago. I saw them at an event six months later. Yes. Yeah, yeah and that, that happens to me a lot. And, in fact, probably the last 15, 16 years, all of the work I've done has come as a result of exactly that scenario. So, 
You're clearly leaving them with a good impression. Well, I think you just play straight, you know, get the job done. I work hard but and I'm not, you know, I'm not too interested in office politics. I'm not too interested in any of that kind of stuff. So I, as you say, I've got a family. I want to get home at the end of the day and spend some time with them. So, But it's happened a lot. I mean, even when I was in the States, I worked for a woman in San Francisco who then moved back to New York. And then when I moved back to New York years later, she you know, rang and said, I hear you back in town, why don't you come in and it would be great if we could work together again. So that sort of happens a lot. Um, and I think that happens because, A, you're competent, you know, you have to be that sort of hygiene factor. But, you know, don't be a wanker. Just be real and honest and navigate to find a solution rather than navigate to make drama. I think there's a lot of drama in the workplace that doesn't necessarily need to be there. That's such extraordinary. I only found that out. Like what you just said, I only found that out and I had to have my, all, my whole career come to an utter standstill when I ended up in America unemployed for the first time in my life. It's a big moment, isn't it? Yeah. I'm like, oh, shit, here we are. Yeah, right. It was only then that I realised and I actually kind of had to forensically analyse how I did get all the jobs along the way and it, it was through the loose connections. Yeah. It wasn't through the people I call my closest of friends. No. It was through people I'd met once or twice. Yep. And the value of making sure that people you meet once or twice, therefore everyone is left with a good feeling yeah. when they remember you yeah. was really impressed upon me. Yeah. I think it's really important and it's, you know, I think it's difficult when you're under the, It's e- sorry, it's easy when you're under the pump to act without grace. You know, and I would love to say that, you know, I'm a near perfect person and I always respond with civility and grace. Truth is I don't. You know, I get cross and frustrated like everybody. But I think, you know, you know how you have sort of your avatar. <laughs> if I was able to be the avatar, I would want to always treat people with civility and always kind of try and be dispa- dispassionate, which has got a lot of bad press. You know, you're meant to be emotional and involved and engaged, but I actually think that sometimes that's more disruptive than helpful particularly in high-pressure situations. So an ability to, to act with dignity and grace I think is really important. So when you were um, coming into this this Think TV gig, yeah. were you able to shape the role in any way for yourself? Uh, yes, in as much as um, I was the inaugural CEO. So it didn't. it's a bit nice when it's never existed before because you mm. can kind of shape things. That work I talked about before kind of putting together the plan in terms of the things that I thought would be good for the business, that's really what we executed in the first year. So with, you know, the board's buy-in and acceptance. So I probably was shaping it before I ever started. Um, Probably 70% of it happened exactly the way I thought it would and then there was a whole lot that didn't, which was actually really good for me Um, because I think that one of the challenges you've got is you get more senior and more experienced to that point before, you need to be seeing and learning new things, even if at the time it's a bit painful. <laughs> um, otherwise you're not actually growing, you're not getting better and you're not really being the right kind of leader. If if everything has been done twice before and there's no new frontier, then it's probably not challenging enough and you certainly wouldn't be challenging your team on that basis. Do you put pressure on yourself to keep learning? Yeah, absolutely. How does it fall into your week? How do you find time? Um, I read... Every day, every day. And I read, you know, I read worky stuff because you sort of have to keep up with that stuff. But then in the evenings I read other things. So I was actually at an event last night and I ended up talking to this fascinating woman who was a statistician, an academic, 
And I was quite curious because I said, you know, I'd love to be able to look at a statement and then in the way a statistician approaches it, deconstruct all the things and figure out what's true and what's not true and where the errors or holes are in the calculations of the argument. And so I was saying to her, I really need a short course on statistics. It was one of those funny conversations where this woman's obviously got a PhD in statistics, was just laughing at me saying, it doesn't work that way. I'm like, what? It, but we need it. Someone needs to invent for people like me who are curious. And, and it's just, it's everything that you read in the press. You know, yeah. the polls say this, the survey says that. To actually be able to understand what you were looking at critically and be able to make a more informed decision so she was very gracious and said that it probably wasn't going to be a week-long course, but she would look right. <laughs> or send me some books. So well, I think that that's an extraordinarily important skill, certainly when, um, you know, we're never really taught to question poll numbers. We're never really taught to question. Someone says 72% of people agree with this. We go, well, it's clearly true. You don't understand that that was, you know, 10,000 people being phoned up, being asked, would you rather set your children on fire or vote liberals? Yeah. Uh, 72% of people prefer liberals, you know. They yeah. don't, that's not the question yeah. they ask. But no. The, but you know what I mean? This sort of stuff's really important to understand about how surveys are done. I agree. You can't just see the figure at the end and go, well, clearly it's true. Yeah, the questions are really important and then how they calculate the results. So I know enough to be dangerous. That's why I need to do this extra <laughs> extra learning so that I'm a bit more informed. But, yeah, the way you ask a question is really important. Yeah. It's that classic, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Like there's no right Jesus. answer to that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Have you, you've heard that, you know, have you heard that, that, that question? It's like there's no right answer. Yes, no, God, what, what, wow. what's going on? So if you ask the question in a particular way and then I think, you know, the way that they calculate results and the way they publish the results and it's everywhere, numbers and opinion polls and surveys are just everywhere. So I'd like to be more critically minded Hmm. Uh, about that stuff. What about when it came to creating a work, as you're the inaugural CEO, what, what about when it came to creating a, a workplace culture? Did you put much work into that, much effort? Yeah, well, I'm still working on it. Um, I'm not sure you ever stop working on it. We're a really small team, so there's only a couple of us. What, 12, 15? Gosh, no, we're half that size. Oh. Yeah, no, we're half. There's one, two, three, four, five, six of us. Okay. Well, yeah. I've met half of you. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. Um, and I'm a perfectionist too, so I've hold myself to quite high standards. So balancing the personal obsessive compulsive perfection needs with a very small office and the thing I've learned probably is in big businesses there's always someone to backfill. So if your marketing manager's out or your finance officer's out or your it doesn't matter who, there's always someone, A, that can backfill and B, it's probably not going to be super urgent because businesses of that size move at their own rhythm. So when you start a very small business, you're trying to move at pace, balancing a respectful treatment of people who are sick or on jury duty or, you know, the kids aren't well. And all of that is real life stuff. And I'm a mum, so I understand it exactly with the counterbalance, which is you're a small team. And if you're not here, it doesn't happen. Um, is, you know, that's a challenge. So, so, you know, some days I get it right. Some days I don't, you know, some days I don't. And the days I don't, I don't feel great about myself. But the great news is you go back in the next day and go, right, we'll do better today. We'll do better today. Uh, I'm sure you haven't had to do it yet, but what have you learned throughout your career about firing people? Um, 
I have had to fight, not in this job. No, that's what I mean. not, not in this job because it's so new. Or as I like to call it, transitioning to new opportunities. Um, good oh, reframe. Good reframe. Yeah. yeah, it's grim. You know, that that's a grim <laughs> conversation because normally by the time you've got to that stage, things are so poor. You know, like I've never, I've only ever had to once um, terminate an employee for cause um, and that was almost sort of easy, to be honest, because the behaviour was so flagrant mm. that that was a very s- simple conversation. Um, it's when people aren't performing and they know they're not performing and they're struggling in the job, which makes them unhappy, and then you start to get absenteeism. And truthfully, they probably shouldn't be in that particular Or Quite often it's when people transition from sort of one specialty into another and the business, you know, either hasn't provided them with the right support or the person is just not, you know, geared to deliver that particular role. And, you know, try and be as kind as you possibly can, um, try and be as gracious as you possibly can, make sure that there is, you know, whoever their work buddy is, is not worded up because that's inappropriate, but sort of that they're around, that you can sort of see they're around because there's always tears and, yeah, it's awful. It's an awful conversation, horrible conversation. Have you been fired? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah? Yeah. I think until you've been through that process, so I was made redundant, Um and, you know, I probably spent six months before that wondering when I was going to get made redundant because, you know, the business was – it was pretty clear where the signs were going. Um, and, I, you know, I was looking for another job because I thought this isn't working out. But it was actually really liberating when it happened. And I'd probably gotten myself into such a state because I'd never actually been fired before that um, I'd worried myself stupid. To be honest, and at the end of the day, it's a job, and yes, it's an important part of your life. But I was actually, it was actually really liberating. I went to the beach that afternoon, sat on the beach. I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this for a little while. It's good. Yeah, it's really good. So a lot of people might, you know, we have an uncertain economic time at the moment in Australia. Some people are experiencing enormous growth. A lot of people are experiencing a lot of stagnation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as we move to those, those peak times towards the end of the year, calendar year or the end of the financial year, you kind of go, oh, fuck, what's going to what's what's happen? What's going to happen? Yeah. Should I book the holiday or not? Yeah, I get it. And look, I, you know, I wouldn't wish anyone to be fired. You know, that's not my hope for humanity. But I suppose, I suppose if it does happen, don't let it define you. You know, I've, I've met people in life who, for whatever reason, things didn't work out and instead of actually being able to either find a new path or, or forgive themselves in some instances, but, you know, it's easy to say when when you're not worried about paying the rent, you know. So I totally understand that for some people that's a catastrophic choice mm. and I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Yeah. It's tough. And it's you're right, you know, you get to the end of the year, but everybody lives on a budget, right? It's just obviously the scale of the budget changes. But, um, yeah, you know, but, you know, we ask ourselves questions like should we, shouldn't we, what does the future look like, maybe we should save a bit more first and quite frugal I suppose. But, um, yeah, you know, no one's got unlimited funds. We live in a finite world. Yeah. Although I was saying to somebody yesterday, if I had my choice, I'd rather have time than money. Oh, boy. So if I could figure out a way to expand the continuum so that in each day, for example, I had 30 hours versus everybody else's 24 or I could have a million dollars, I would so – I would figure out how to change time. I guess you're right. Yeah. Because that's – 
you know, you, you cannot buy time. No. no and one. it's the thing that stresses you because you're always late or something needs doing or, or in my world anyway. So if I could actually figure out a way to sort of get myself an extra four or five hours to just, and I don't even know what I'd fill it with yet, but just the idea that there was more time or that I can sort of open a suitcase and pull out, you know, here is an extra three days. We can just pop those into the schedule and everything will be fine. That's kind of what I'd like to do. That would be great. That would be great. You mentioned having to learn and, and learning and ongoing learning as a part of, you know, your job. Um, I do tell Georgia all the time with, and she doesn't like it when she hears it. I said, look, homework never stops. Uh, I'm sorry, kiddo. Yeah. It never stops. If you want to be successful, you've got to do homework and lots of it. Yeah. Um, coming into this role, which is, um, helping, now I'm going to try and, you know, put what I believe Think TV is trying to do, uh, trying to change the perception of a marketing industry about television advertising and, trying to change the perception of a bunch of people who live within a bubble um, about what actual Australians do with their day. Yeah. You, I'm guessing, would have had to learn a lot about how people consume TV. Yeah, well, yes. I, yes, absolutely. I think part, part of what you've described is what we do, but there's probably a second part. Yeah. And the second part is if you're in business, ultimately it's a commercial enterprise. So television is an effective way to grow business. And I've seen that, experienced that. So one of the things we're really interested in is changing the conversation so that people understand that you can actually achieve a better commercial outcome. So it's really about the effectiveness of television to grow a business. And it's a very, you know, I understand it's just, it's quite a narrow and focused sort of remit that we have. So, yes, we have to learn about television and, yes, we have to learn about all the other media and all the viewing, but it's probably more important for us to have a conversation about what are you getting for what you're spending. And I think that's the conversation that we need to change. And, and one of the reasons I took the job was in my previous role I did, you know, tons of stuff, you know, the world world first with Instagram and, you know, had social media teams and, and it's all good stuff. It all works really well. But what I couldn't figure out was I was following all of the current ideology around what I should be doing as a marketer and my business wasn't growing. And I kept thinking if I'm doing all this stuff right and all of these things are meant to give me an uptick in sales or yield or profit or all three, why isn't my business growing? And if you look at um, you know, retail sales across this country and internationally, it's kind of anemic, you know. So there's got to be something not quite right if we're all following the experts' advice and we're not actually seeing an outcome. So back to that critical thinking, I think that um, one of the reasons I wanted to do this was I was like, well, there's got to be another way and maybe everything old is new again and now that TV is everywhere, perhaps that's the right opportunity. But I think it's more about effectiveness and, and about the power to make a difference. We talked a lot about when I did the presentation for you, we talked a lot about living in a bubble. Yes. What are some – and that was particularly to one particular audience yep. of of marketers. Yeah. Um, so people who run advertising agencies and, and yep. can make creative agencies and, and television uh, people. Um, a lot of people listening won't have that kind of job, but they may live in a bubble. How, right. What are some ways you can tell if you do live in a bubble? I think if your conversations with people are all echoing exactly the same views as your own, it's a fair bet you're in a bubble. Um, you know, the notion – I think social media is a really interesting place because these echo chambers where – and particularly from a political point of view where everybody's agreeing with everybody, you know, all the time, there's a good chance that you're in a bubble. 
Um, I think more dangerous though is if you are a critical thinker and you understand that the world is changing, that you don't explore other people's bubbles. So, you know, after the election in the US and Brexit and even some of our own, you know, senatorial races, I make a point of at least every couple of days sitting down and watching news outlets that have quite contrary views to mine, but I sit through it because I keep thinking this is the way a nice slab of the population thinks. Mm. And disengaging or calling them foolish is not actually going to move anything anywhere, but understanding where the thinking comes from and finding some common ground. Um, and you know, this the, the study that you and I worked on, it, it kind of started as a bit of let's, you know, let's take a look and see if we really do live in a bubble. It was never, you know, if you can't laugh at yourself, mm. what, what's the point? And what we found was this echo chamber piece around we're all different. Do you, are you a Monty Python fan? Mm. Yeah, so Life of Brian, we're all individuals. Mm-hmm. It, that, that's kind of and, – and we wanted to stress test that, but I think it's, it's equally true of any community. Um, you know, talk to people who don't think like you. Read books that don't – you know, that you don't necessarily agree with. Watch television that doesn't necessarily conform to your own views on both sides. Mm. You know, on both sides of the the political but it feels so safe, Kim. If I only ever, when I turn on my Facebook or I open my Twitter, and I'm not challenged at all by anything I read, it feels like oh, I'm in the right place. Yeah, well, and you you might be, but before you know it, you'll be you know standing still and no one be talking to. You. Well, actually, it's funny. Does your Facebook actually have any feedback on it anymore? Mine just has ads. I've stopped. I've I've turned all that. Yeah, I've got ad blockers it. for days. Yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. right. Um, yeah. You know what, though, don't I, there is a place for safety. Mm. Um, I would argue that's inside your home with your family and that's a really sensible thing. Um, but if you want to grow as a person, you need to kind of look outside the window, don't you? Yeah. Otherwise, no one grows. If we all, well, it's diminishing returns, isn't it? If we're all talking to each other and we all agree with the same thing, the same 20 people, those 20 people are never exposed to anything. You, you know, travel is a really great way to expand your mind in a safe way. Mm. Um, you know, exposure to other cultures and other people. That's a, and I've always, well, for many years, been involved in that industry, as you know. So, you travel within your own city. Yes, yes. You know, yes. Audrey used to laugh at me all the time because I didn't grow up in Sydney. Um, I didn't really know much beyond the Anzac Bridge. Yep. I just didn't. Yep. I never had a cause to. Foxtel was in uh, circulate at Darling Harbour. Um, uh, Channel uh, Idol was in North Ride. I didn't know anything 100 metres away from Epping Road or Bondi. That was it. Yeah, right. That's all I knew for a decade. Yeah. And Audrey grew up, grew up after she came here from Fiji, she grew up in Western Sydney and we go out to these suburbs and I'm like, where is this place? Yeah, right. She just go, you really? You've lived here for so long? Just, but you get it. Well, part of that is you get it. Don't beat yourself up on that one because I think there's just a comfort zone where yeah. life happens and on the weekends you just want to sit quietly and have a cup of tea. I do. Yeah. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. I do these days. Yeah, yeah. That's for sure. Exactly right. Uh, but but exactly like when you go to, uh, for example, um, like if you would go to the Easter show or you go to uh, like a music festival or if you go somewhere, you're suddenly faced with all these people like – it can be if you have only lived inside your bubble, mm-hmm. and then suddenly you're faced with public displays of people who live and act and work and and behave in a way different to you. Yep. it'll freak you the fuck out. Yeah, yeah, no, and- but that's res- then that's where resilience comes in. So if you, to your point, if you live in a bubble and you don't explore, it's absolutely going to be confronting. So start small. You mm. know, go out to Haberfield and get the cheesecake. 
then head a bit further, you know, and a bit further and a bit further and a bit further. Um, I, I, it's hard for me to understand why people wouldn't want to know more about the world they live in and I think that's just that's a matter of personal orientation. Yeah, I'd say you're a very different human being to a lot of others. Yeah. I would say just the nature of the course of your career where it's taken you from Brisbane. I always find that people from Brisbane end up, if they get out of Brisbane, they end up a long way. Yes. Brisbane, yes. Because you've got to work so hard to achieve escape velocity anyway. Yeah. It, I mean, don't get me wrong. Brisbane's amazing. Yes, I sure, love it. I sure. work there like seven months of the year. Yeah. It can be very comfortable though. And, you know, to, to, to want to get out of Brisbane gives, leaves you with enough oomph that by the time you get to Sydney, you're like, oh, I might go a little further. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's exactly right. Isn't it? That's the experiment. Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, I was, I don't think I was ever going to settle in Brisbane. I didn't know where I would go, but I knew yeah. that I was probably as a teenager quite frustrated about the smallness of everybody knowing everybody else's yeah. and that echo chamber thing because everybody yeah. was the same. Brisbane's very different now. Yes, I'm sure. An incredibly different city. Like I said, I'm there for seven months of the year and it's uh, it's full of Victorians and it's, it's like an AFL-obsessed city and mm. – it's got, you know, incredible road infrastructure that leaves Sydney for dead and it's a really fun place to be. It's not the cow town that closes at 4 o'clock on a Friday right. that it was when I grew up. Right, right, right. right. Well, I think you and I about the same age. We probably <laughs> had a similar experience. Was, probably yeah. in the theatre, musical together, I'm sure. If you had if you had an empty tank of gas on Saturday sucked in, you're not filling up till Monday. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, you didn't get your groceries sorted out Thursday night. Too well, bad. Remember Thursday night shopping? How oh, fabulous that was. Like, oh, my gosh, it's changed everything. At Indro. It's the greatest. Oh, yes. Yeah, exactly. Indro. Funny. Indro Thursday nights. So what did you learn about And now we live in a, in a time where um, – we have – no, I, don't, I won't, you know, because I know that there's some things you, you can't really discuss. Uh, like for me, we've got NBN in our street, but it's the, the shitty poor cousin of what it could have been NBN mm. and, you know, the idea of how we could have been delivering content to our homes versus how we ended up delivering content to our homes is very sad for my money. <laughs> um, how, how have you seen television watching change uh, even in the last 18 months or so that you've been working on this project? So I think there's still, well, I think there's a couple of things. The majority of television is still watched in a living room, like 88% of it thereabouts, um, certainly on a monthly basis. I think what's changing is the ability to choose device and time. And I think that's a really positive thing. Um, so we're not... We're no longer constrained by somebody providing us a schedule and there's still lots of people that watch, particularly sports and news and, you know, sort of event TV. So the thing that I think is interesting is people are probably watching more television, you know, across various content and various devices. The way they watch is quite different. So, you know, the way you consume content on a mobile tends to be more quick grabs and you can imagine sort of sitting on a, you know, I don't know if you catch public transport, I occasionally do. It's sort of on the train or on the bus and you're watching sort of three or four minutes of something and then you're sort of on to the next thing versus more long form like my teenager who, you know, we have a, a Netflix account and, you know, we've got Foxtel and we've got Ten Play and, you know, so there's many, many choices for her. And she will choose to exercise her independence by not sitting with us as a family event to watch television and she does it on her own iPad or a computer. So I think... 
the sooner we stop thinking about TV as a fixed thing and start to think about it as video content that's accessible anywhere and anytime, probably we will get a closer version of the truth. When I think about um, how much emphasis is put upon, uh, say, a YouTuber who's got a video with 500,000 views, Mm. people go, wow, that's exciting. And it took them three weeks to get that. And, and, you know, um, The Bachelor will do 12 times that audience, you know, in 30 minutes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it seems to be that, you know, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm shilling for the industry I work in, but no. we are all very excited by this idea of being able to watch anything we want about anything we want, anytime we want, anywhere we want. Yes. It is all very exciting. I love watching obscure cycling videos on my phone, on the toilet. Yep. It's great. Exactly. All right? Yep. But when it comes to, and and for me, what's also very important for, I think, us as a culture, as an Australian culture, having those communal experiences yes. of this appointment to view, of this kind of cultural thing, I think yeah. it's really important I do too. as a society. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Uh, and I think we, and I don't know if it's other families, but we certainly watch television traditionally together mm. and it is a family event. You know, and that can be the new. We actually watch the news as a family, which is really interesting. Movies and all that sort of lots and lots of different genres. But I think that one of the key things that the television industry delivers to this country is an Australian narrative. And I don't mean that inside the news. I mean telling Australian stories, sharing an Australian point of view. And that's not to say that there's not great international content and your, you know, obscure bicycle videos on YouTube also have a place. But I would hate to think of a world where the broadcasters weren't sharing those Australian stories. I think that's that's really not a great place for us. Having spent a, a bit of time in my life in in two separate markets that aren't English language, like I've spent a, a lot of time when I was working in the Netherlands, and I spent a bunch of time in Israel. So you've got these two countries that are tiny, yep, tiny, t- smaller than Sydney, yep. All right, and yet entire industries dedicated to making uh, drama both scripted and non-scripted, yep. in Dutch yep. or in Hebrew. Yep. And it seems like as someone who's like I'm pushing, trying as hard as I can to get into scripted and, and you know, I've got a few things that I'm working on to try and get that up. It's so hard that like in the Netherlands, for example, you can make an incredible drama in Dutch and the whole country will watch it because it's right. a story. Right. All right. But it tells their, and it can be as Dutchy as you like. Yep. Because it's telling their story full of their cultural references and cultural narrative and it's great. In Australia, you can try and tell an Australian story, but you're up against NCIS and you're up against CSI and you're up against these monster, monster, monster narratives from overseas with production budgets that are 10, 100 times more than you are. I I find that we have that unique challenge here in Australia. Um, What are your your thoughts when it comes to the future of scripted and content in this country? So I probably have a slightly different perspective on that. I think that a solid story is a solid story. And... Sometimes the power of the narrative. So if you look at um, Big Little Lies is a great example of that, which I know the production values were beautiful on it. But certainly I think one of the things that user-generated content out of social media has given us is an understanding that a solid story um, with or without high production values still has merit and we still have an audience. The question is how big an audience Mm. Um, and what do you want to do with that audience? So are you trying to commercialise it or are you just trying to, you know, 
find your voice and share your view. So I think that's really positive actually. Yeah. In terms of the future, look, you know, if I knew the answer to that, I would be getting paid a lot more than I am now. <laughs> you know, I think there's whole industries that are designed to pick the next big hit and I think some of it is science but I think most of it's gut. Yeah. You know, I think people just – people smarter and – wired differently to me, you know, can kind of, and I'm sure you're the same, you know, you can look at something and say that's going to be massive and others will look at it and not see it. And I think there's just a real skill there. You know, the programmers are clever. They're very clever people. I've really got to get some more programmers on this show. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least take their advice. (laughs) Oh, look, I've pitched to them many a time. I've been trying to get shows up for years. And what do they say? Do they give you constructive advice? Uh, normally it's, mm, we can't take a risk this big on an unproven format. Oh, wow, okay, <laughs> wow. So, yeah, wow, okay. That's normally, that's not, because I'm pitching uh, in studio. Right. Uh, um, non-scripted. Yep. Uh, that's the th- stuff I've been pitching at the moment. And they're like, ah, unless you're bringing us something that you can show us how it went, even in Bucharest, what did it do there? Yeah, right. Then we can make it here. And that's just a function of the commercial pressure it the is. business is under, you know. It's part of what yeah. we do, this effectiveness piece. We need more money coming back in television so we can start to fund more scripted and unscripted. Yeah. You know, it's important. Which is why, like, uh, you know, part of the thing, that the drama stuff that I'm trying to do is, like, definitely very Australian stuff that couldn't be told anywhere else. Oh, wow. Yeah. I hope it gets up. I'd love to see it. I'll tell you about it when I turn the mics off. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Now, we did, we did make a big hubbub uh, at the Mumbrella Conference when we, when we put this out. You let me go on stage and say swear words in front of very important people. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, how did we go? Did, did, we, did we make a dent? Did yes, we do a good job? we certainly did. We certainly did. I mean, I think part of what we wanted to do together was just say to the industry, take a breath. Just take a breath. Um, and take a look and have a giggle and let's not – I mean, no one was suggesting that they're making poor decisions off the back of their own points of view because there's always obviously data, but I think it's really important to be able to understand that maybe you you need to be connected to the customer in a way that you remove bias, unconscious bias, and we talked a lot about that. And it was certainly – we got some interesting feedback and it was probably in two camps. So I would say those – folk that are comfortable in their own skin probably had a laugh at it and it took it in the spirit it was intended. I think there were probably a much smaller but certainly a, another group who were really offended mm. um, and didn't necessarily want the mirror held up so close <laughs> to their face. And that's fine. You know, mm. you're never going to please everybody. In the end, I think what we were trying to accomplish was a conversation about let's let's take a look at ourselves and see how we're – similar and how we're different and if you roll through you know brexit and trump surely an understanding of other people now obviously this is like tiny compared to the implications of those kind of things it's it's not a bad thing not a bad thing to have a view that you understand who you are and where your center of gravity is and how that's different to other people because it just what makes you more informed human being in the end doesn't it and certainly when it comes to the economics of things, when you're trying to reach the greatest audience possible, if you only go after what you are, you're, yeah. s- you're not really going to do that. Well, and I think, again, a conversation around what's effective is probably the right conversation. I mean, I was a market for many years. I don't think I ever had a conversation that didn't start with, is it working? And for me, working meant sales. You know, am I making money? And all metrics kind of around that. Less than that, certainly. And, you know, there's 
complicated formula for purchase funnels and all sorts of things. But in the end, if you sit in front of the CEO or the CFO, all they want to know is did they make money today, this week, this month, this year? And, you know, that's that's all part of it. You've got to play that game. I love it. Are you enjoying it? Yeah, I am. I'm loving it. I really am loving it. I, um, I'd like... I'd like people to be more – I'd like the digerati to be more open-minded. Digerati. The digerati. Um, I think there's a group of people who are so entrenched, and it's, it's, I'm not the only person that talks about this, but, you know, you put digital in front of somebody's title and then by default you've already removed a strategic imperative. So if you're the digital marketing manager, then by default you're going to be looking only at that small or large landscape inside your own business as opposed to being a marketer who's got a strategic view about how to commercially grow the business. So I think people get very entrenched. You know, they get really defensive because they're defending their patch, whereas I'm a bigger fan, I suppose, of looking at long-term kind of growth opportunities, zero-based budgeting, what's the right strategy, start there Mm. and then work backwards into sort of what your tactics are. But, um, yeah, it'd be good if... It'd be good if we could get more open minds. I think that would work nicely for everything, to be honest, Kim. Which is, you know, that's <laughs> part of what this, the work we did together was all about, opening minds. Opening minds. Um, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. That thank was an you hour. Oh, was it right? really? Yeah, I feel great. Yeah? Yeah, it was good. I, I want to see the dog before I go, though. <laughs> we will fetch the dog for your, for your play. A little cuddle. For your cuddles. Thank you. And I'm going to take a quick photo, okay? Yeah, sure. Okay, sweet. Thanks, Kim. That was Kim Portrait. You can find her on Twitter, K-I-M-P-O-R-T-R-A-T-E, Kim Portrait. Uh, let her know that you heard her here. Don't forget to send me a photograph of whatever it is you're looking at right now. If you got all this way through to the podcast, just whip out your phone, shoot a photo, send us your email at gmail.com. Uh, just shoot it through. I'd love to see what you're looking at. love to see how you listen and where you take me through your day. Again, thank you so much to everyone that came to say hello at OzPod. It was brilliant to see everyone. I hope this week you enjoy the Bachelor final, Bachelor 2017. Uh, we worked really hard on making it great. I know you're going to love it. Uh, that's all I'll say. But thank you so much for watching this season. It's been a great season. Until we speak next time, uh, big thanks to Hayley Van Spania, my uh, production coordinator that helped Kim and I find a time to talk together. And, of course, Andy Maher, the great and powerful, who was also at Ozpod. It was brilliant. Um, thank you for producing this show today, Andy. Um, but for everyone listening, for you listening, thank you so much for being here. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.